Hello, beautiful alchemist. Welcome to Reiki Radio. I am your host, Yolanda, and I want to wish you all a very happy Halloween. Um, I'm wondering if any of you are doing some practices tonight of working with your altars, connecting with your ancestors. Would love to hear what you all are doing, um, even if it's trick-or-treating, <laughs> handing out candy, whatever's going on. I hope that you have a lovely Halloween. And for today's episode, um, which was not planned this way, but just ended up landing perfectly, we're having a conversation with one of my favorite guests. His name is Nicholas Pearson. And in fact, he will share with you something you can work with for Halloween or this season to support you in your practices of connecting with ancestors and those who may have crossed over that you just have an admiration for. But before we get into all of that, um, I do want to remind you all that um, the uh, I have an, a new Oracle deck. It's called the Energetic Alchemist Oracle. And I just had a free class called Behind the Veil with the Oracle, which was yesterday. But if you still want to order the deck, which you can go to my website, theenergeticalchemist.com and get your limited edition copy. It is such a beautiful deck. I'm so thankful for the way everything came out. Even the boxing is gorgeous. Um, it really took a village on this project. So thank you again to Hillary and Turtle for making sure it is as beautiful as it is. Um, but I wanted to let you know that even if you missed the live class, you can still have access to the recording when you purchase the deck. I will make sure that you can um, access that to get some more tips of how to read intuitively instead of just relying solely on the book that comes with the deck. Also, for those of you who want to go deeper into working with Oracle, perhaps integrating it into your work to help facilitate coaching. If you want to learn how to facilitate uh, coaching, wellness coaching, and integrating this all in with energy work, then you can sign up for my class, Alchemy of the Oracle, which the class starts technically in December because it includes Alchemy of the Seeker. And there are Oracle boxes that are going out to people participating in that class. So if you are interested, go to my website, theenergeticalchemist.com and register because I will be sending out the Oracle boxes very soon. So back to today's interview. Um, as I mentioned, I am having a discussion today with one of my favorite guests. And in fact, I consider him a friend at this point. His name is Nicholas Pearson. And he may be very familiar to you because I have interviewed him about his other books. Um, he is a crystal expert. He's also a Reiki teacher. And today he is going to be teaching us about flower essences. And I interviewed him in the past with one of his books called um, Archetypal Goddess Stones or Stones of the Goddess, Archetypal Stones of the Goddess. And his Reiki book, Foundations of Reiki Rojo, is actually one of my favorite Reiki books. And I recommend it to people all the time. I use it in classes. And so you can go back in the archives to check out those interviews as well. But today we are going to discuss one of his newer books, Flower Essences from the Witch's Garden. And just like 
all of his other books. It is very, very educational, very informative. And I honestly, when I saw this book, I thought, oh, I don't know how much I'm going to get out of it because I don't work with flower essences and this type of thing. But as I mentioned, the research that he does is phenomenal. But more interestingly for me is he really ties in how we can work with flower essences, the energy and the spirit of flowers and plants to support us in our spiritual alchemy, how these energies can really support us in finding balance and harmony emotionally, mentally with um, releasing certain patterns. So there's so much work that can be done with flower essences and we will get into that today. One more thing though, I wanna tell you about Nicholas. He and I both had the opportunity to participate in the Reiki Rays Healing Summit, which is coming up on November 11th. And I got to personally interview him and in the summit, he discusses Reiki and shamanism, which was fascinating. <laughs> he gives such beautiful information. I mean, it, it was really, really interesting, the correlation between Reiki and shamanism um, and uh, other Japanese occult practices and traditions. You really, you will learn a lot from him, but there are over 30 interviews within the summit. So if you haven't registered for that yet, go to my site and you can register. Now, what will happen is once you register, you get access to four interviews right away for free. And then the summit itself is held over six days. And if you are watching for free, you can watch the interviews on the days that they launch. But then after that, you won't have access unless you purchase a ticket. So if you want access to all of the content and be able to um, watch just at your own convenience, then be sure to get a ticket. I believe that early bird pricing is still available. So either way, just register so you can have some access and including some free gifts from some of the speakers. So go to my website, theenergeticalchemist.com, register for the Reiki Rays Healing Summit, and you will hear from Nicholas there as well. Okay, so let's get into today's conversation. I thank you so much for being here and I will see you on the other side. Okay, everyone, welcome to Reiki Radio. Today we have the most special guest that we've had several times because he keeps writing amazing books. We have Nicholas Pearson here today. So I want to tell you, thank you so much for coming back to the show. It is my pleasure. Um, you know, this is one of my favorite gigs or one of my favorite people. So um, if I have to keep writing books to spend time with you, I'll keep doing that. You know, it's so funny because I always refer to you as my friend. I'm like, yeah, my friend Nicholas, he's this amazing author, and we've never had a chance to meet in real life yet. 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 But I, I just want to start out by saying, and you know this, um, but I love, love your book so, so much. And when I started reading the book that we're going to discuss today, Flower Essences from the Witch's Garden, in my mind genuinely Nicholas I was like he's done it again I mean it's phenomenal how much you feel like you read on or how much you learn on every page of your books it's just I don't even understand 
how you find the time to, I mean, you break everything down to where you really, I mean, like you're just so deeply educated reading your book. So I thank you for the amount of research and patience it must take, but I can't even imagine what inspires you to go into the depths you go into. So I want to start out by asking, I saw that this book was dedicated to your grandmother, but could you talk to us a little bit about your inspiration for this book? Because a lot of people listening are only familiar with you in terms of crystals and Reiki. Yeah. Um, this book is kind of a special project for me and it, it felt like uncertain waters because I haven't really written about this in the past. I've done a few like local classes on the topic of flower essences and I've been a big fan of flower essences for a long time because they have been a big portion of my own kind of wellness journey mm -hmm. over the last 18 years now. But honestly, the inspiration, like the impetus to write this book was merely that I noticed I was doing things with flower essences that there wasn't a manual for, mm -hmm. and that most books about them focus on particular lines or ranges, or they're just kind of encyclopedic collections of different lines and ranges together. And the focus was not really on what you can do yourself. So I wanted to kind of synthesize all of that, like the way I do with everything else. Um, I put my scholar hat on, but then I like get practical and get my hands dirty and kind of keep a foot in each of those realms. So writing this book is... Um, special to me because I got to honor some of my teachers and my um, sources of inspiration, both both personal and professional. And um, you saw the dedication to my grandmother. So my very first book, The Seven Archetypal Stones, is dedicated to my grandfather. He gave me my first quartz crystal. And um, thanks to him, my life is totally different than it would have been without that rock. I'm, I'm pretty sure that changed the entire course of my life. Wow. And my grandmother instilled within me this great love for all things flowering. Um, she was an avid gardener. Even when she wasn't well, she loved to have flowers around. And the two most important things, um, flowers either had to be very big, bold, and showy, or extremely fragrant and even better if it could be both at the same time. So, you know, these days I can't look at a bird of paradise or a tibushina and not think of her. Even the smell of orange blossoms reminds me of her backyard. And I will always love flowers because of that. Yeah. You know, well, it's really interesting because I thought when I saw the book, I thought like, oh, I don't know anything about this. I don't know if this is my thing, right? And I started reading the book and automatically drawn in. I was fascinated and recognized that I think a lot of us have more of a relationship to plants and nature than we may realize. And so it, it was very interesting in that way. But I have to tell you this because I want to get into what flower essences are. But as a side note, I knew that my first name meant violet in uh, Greek. So then I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. And I also knew that my initials, Y-E-W, the U tree. So I was like, oh, my name is even all <laughs> wrapped up in this book. So I was really excited to see in the back of the book where you have an appendix of the different flowers and plants and the U tree and both the violet were in there. And both of them were related to Persephone. So now... I'm going to do this whole deep dive just because of my name and your book. So thank you for that. 
<laughs> my pleasure. Um, I'm, I'm grateful that those plants found you. You is a really special teacher for me. Um, and maybe we can get into that, but uh, I'm, I'm glad you found a way to make it personal. Yeah, very personal. But I want to start with that, what plant essences are, because a lot of people may not know. And could you tell us the difference between plant essence and essential oils? Yeah, so this is a really common misconception because the names sound so similar to one another. And one of these, um, we'll say preparations, has uh, a lot of PR behind it. And the other one, not so much. So uh, flower essences are a kind of vibrational remedy, similar to the act of making gem elixirs or gem essences or recharge water with the energy of a gemstone. We're doing the same kind of thing, but with a botanical ingredient. Usually we use the flower because it's kind of considered to be the highest expression of that plant's life force. But essences could also be made from non-flowering plants or from um, mushrooms or from the landscape. There's all sorts of different vibrational remedies out there that kind of use the same basic principles. And the actual end product is this sort of highly dilute but energetically concentrated solution that carries what we could say is the soul pattern or maybe a little spark of consciousness from that, that host plant or anything else. And they're usually made by um, cutting the flowers and um, placing them in your bowl and putting that under direct sun. Of course, if you have night blooming flowers, you have to adapt. If you're using something that doesn't bloom, you have to adapt. And they're even indirect methods, which is especially good if you're making things that uh, making essences from things that might be toxic. And what you end up with through this process of like cereal dilution, you take that, that mother essence and you dilute it down to a stock bottle. And then we dilute that down to a, um, what we would call a dosage bottle. Um, we, we get this process of refinement that almost expands the reach of it. And because of that dilutive process, they, they vaguely resemble homeopathic medicines, but they don't work like homeopathy because it's not the physical substance being diluted, just the energetic substance being diluted. Um, and, you know, essential oils, on the other hand, are highly concentrated um, volatile compounds that are um, either steam or solvent extracted from the botanical matter. So they are, they are focused on the material body of the plant okay. versus the spiritual body of the plant, which is what's involved in making flower essences. That, yeah, I thought that was really interesting reading that too. Um, and just as a side note for everyone, you even have a section in the book where you talk about how to make our own flower essences. <laughs> of course you did because you don't miss any details. But um, thinking about that, just the essence and the spirit of the plant, but then how that can be imprinted upon water itself. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about that because, you know, especially in the realm of the work that we do, we talk about energy all the time and how everything is energetic and everything has a frequency, but thinking about plants themselves, not only having a vibration, but also having um, plant spirits and all of these non-physical components that are in it. And then thinking about our relationship to all of that, I was like, wow, this is really, really fascinating. So just to be clear, you could take a plant and if you're aware of what the plant's energy is or frequency is, you would maybe choose it based on that. And then by placing it in the water, the water is going to take on the essence of that plant. Yeah. 
essentially? Absolutely. Um, there's some really fascinating research that's been done in the realm of understanding water. And we're talking like hard science, you know, uh, chemistry, material science, things like that. that are not really into the woo-woo realm. Um, but we understand that water molecules themselves are kind of malleable. The actual angle that, you know, they've got that kind of Mickey Mouse shape as we conceptualize them with the two hydrogen molecules or ions on top of that big um, oxygen ion to make the, the water molecule. Well, the angle that those ears on the Mickey Mouse uh, form is is variable. And that's not very typical for most substances. So that alone is, is pretty weird. Um, and we also know that uh, water is a polar molecule. So one kind of region of it is is more positively charged and another region is more negatively charged. It's a net kind of neutral effect, but it's like the two poles of a magnet and opposites attract. So water molecules want to line up through something called hydrogen bonding, where those you know, positively charged hydrogen molecules kind of attract um, the, the oxygen end of the next water molecule over. And upon exposure to very weak electromagnetic fields and other sources of like measurable quantifiable energy, we recognize that water will organize itself in different shapes and patterns and loose structures. And we consider that to be a liquid crystal mesophase, a state in between liquidity and crystallinity. If anyone's read my book, Crystal Basics, you hear me talk about that, about um, how crystals might influence us. But if we just look at the water side of it, it makes perfect sense that the kind of electromagnetism that those flowers have, especially when augmented by the electromagnetism of sunlight, could be enough to influence the organization of those water molecules. And that's just looking at things from the quantifiable route. We still have this more esoteric idea of subtle energy, like we talk about in terms of Reiki or other forms of energy healing. And, um, you know, at heart, I'm kind of like this feral animist. The, the older I get, the, the more invested I am in the idea that everything has the spark of life in it. And, and maybe instead of um, just doing things in that prescriptive way that the books tell us, um, even though I write the books, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm really about the relationship we've got with that consciousness. And, um, you know, as we create flower essences, or even if we buy store-bought ones and commercially prepared essences and use them in our practice, we still have that spark of consciousness that is speaking to us on that soul level. And water happens to be the perfect vehicle for expressing that consciousness because it is so malleable. It, it holds that energy like in sacred trust to deliver it to us in a language our bodies understand because our bodies are mostly water too. And that's what makes flower essences extremely subtle because they're, they're dilute. They're extremely um, unlikely to have any physical components of the flowers in the end product, but still energetically it's concentrated because we go through this process of gradual refinement um, that allows that essence to work its magic at the most subconscious level of us. Yeah. And I just want to say too, of course, you included a section just about water within the book too. So it, it made it all very interesting considering like the, the essence and the nature of water itself, and then combining that with um, the flowers, but also what you're just talking, I mean, thinking about the way, um, thinking about water, almost like in the vein, the veins of the plants themselves, and how that may communicate to being what, assuming you're not using like dried out plants 
this type of thing. So I wanted to ask you about that too. How much does it matter to use if you wanted to make a flower essence for it to be a fresh flower? Or is it better to use something that you can pick and get fresh? Can you just get them at the grocery store? I mean, what do you have any preference around that? Yeah, so flower essences need to be made like straight off the plant. So we don't use dried botanicals for that. Dried botanicals still have great energy to them, but it's a different kind of energy that that maybe doesn't communicate as well with the water, doesn't cause it to stick. Um, and, you know, store-bought cut flowers also, they've, we'll say they've hemorrhaged some life force by having been cut. So we want to try to do it as close to the source as possible. Um, that could be in your garden. It could be in a potted plant in a windowsill. It could be out in a wild place or a tiny little corner of green if you live in a more urban area. There are all sorts of ways we can co-create with we'll say the, the plant realm to make essences and we can even do it indirectly. So maybe there's a, a plant you wanna work with that you can't quite cut um, for whatever reasons, it doesn't belong to you or maybe it's endangered or you just can't bear to cut this beautiful flower. Um, there are all sorts of ways to kind of get around that but we do need that kind of proximity between the water and the, the, the parent plant, not just the flowers themselves, because it's kind of the, the source of that life force. Yeah. So I wanted to talk to you about this too. I mean, I think it's important for people to even know what this would be used for. And it's interesting. I was really interested in you talking about um, becoming allies or having plant allies, but you break it down to the balms, the banes and the trees. And I was like, Ooh, this is fascinating. Um, but could you talk a little bit about first, what is it that we would even use plant essences for? How could we come into relationship and have different plant allies? Like how would this even be a benefit to our life, our practice? So when I first got a little bottle of flower essences, it was a little brown dropper bottle, kind of like this. A friend of mine in my hometown offered me a custom blend from the, the batch line. It's like a collection of 38 remedies. And she explained them to me as being like tuning forks for the emotions. And this analogy made a lot of sense to me. I, I was about to go away to school to study music. So I understood the idea of, of tuning things, but I didn't quite understand like, the material part of it. Well, how, what what's in this bottle? And she 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 was kind of vague on that. And it turns out that what's actually in the bottle is kind of vague. It's mostly water and whatever preservative. But that, as we mentioned, water carries that that energy, that frequency. So when we take a couple drops um, in the mouth, or add it to food or beverage, or place it on a pulse point, or spray them in the environment around us, or do any number of different applications with them, it's like playing a a tuning fork. It's like plucking a particular string um, on an instrument, and then it demonstrates the correct pitch. And the idea is that flower essences really only work when we're experiencing something out of balance. So maybe I have a little bit of um, fear of the unknown, some anxiety, something along those lines. So I might take mimulus flower essence from the, the batch line of remedies for that. And when I you know, put those drops in my mouth or on my wrists or spray it in the room around me. Um, it's like listening to the correct pitch. So my, my psyche can go, oh, 
this string is out of tune. We got to tighten it or loosen it to bring it into harmony with this. And we do that with frequency because just like a, a proper instrument, um, environmental factors change. We might, we might be really rough on those strings and loosen them and have to retighten them. So we have to constantly bring ourselves back into balance until we kind of integrate that. And we, we create a kind of really good relative pitch or maybe, maybe even perfect pitch if we're real lucky. And then we move on to whatever the next out of tune string is going to be. And although, although we think of it in terms of that analogy, there is something even deeper happening. It comes from that kind of plant spirit realm, like you mentioned, where not only do we have the therapeutic idea of how these impact our well-being on that kind of vibrational and emotional and spiritual level, but they do become these kind of spiritual allies for us. And if we take them consciously, and conscientiously, if we really intend to kind of forge this relationship rather than this is just a therapeutic means to an end, like if that's all you've got space for in your life, they are effective for that. Please right. do that. Um, flower essences can change your life. But if if we can hold space for that mystery of that spirit relationship, then wonderful things can happen. And in terms of um, the kinds of plant spirits that are out there, they they can become like helpers and guides and teachers. And I have a really influential teacher, a human being that I love very much in this world. And he wrote the foreword to this book. It's Christopher Penzak. Um, in, in his work with plants, he uses a kind of threefold classification for, um, we'll say the natures of the spirits. And the natures of these plant spirits are reflected in you know, the makeup of the plants. And that's where this, this kind of threefold category of bane, balm, and tree spirits comes from. So the balms are the medicinal herbs, lemon balm and peppermint, and maybe even nettle, um, things that are really nutritious, you know, physically to consume, but also vibrationally, they are the healers and um, helpmates in the plant kingdom. And then we have the banes, the Beans are usually poisonous. Sometimes they're just really well defended. They're somehow challenging, maybe sometimes psychoactive. We could think of them as adversarial in nature. They challenge us. They challenge us to grow. They represent the shadow self, um, the kind of underworld energy to the overworld or upper world energy of the, the balms. And these are often the kinds of plants we associate with um, like witchcraft in uh, Western European witch lore. So things like mandrake and monk's hood and, um, you know, other nightshades and poisonous plants. And then finally, we end up with the trees. And the trees are like the mediators between the realms. Uh, proper trees have a strong vertical axis, although, you know, variation, they can have multiple trunks, a single trunk. Um, and trees and we'll say tree-like things um, have this kind of verticality expressed in them that links the upper world and the lower world here in the middle. And trees are kind of like the, the elders, the teachers, the sages. We could say maybe they're the high priests and priestesses of the plant world, um, which is what we're meant to be here in this world. And before we let that go to our heads, it's it's really just because we have the same vertical orientation. We're, we're connected to the realms the same way trees are. So we still have a long way to to learn and grow, um, but trees can help us along that. That is really cool. And even thinking about that um, and the relationship that a lot of people have to trees, even if we don't fully understand like that resonance or that awe that we have of them. I think we even use trees a lot of times to describe so many things, but they are, I mean, it's just 
it's amazing how you feel in the presence of um, different kinds of trees and plants for that matter. But you just made me think of two different things. One that's really interesting is the point you bring up of these flower essences really being able to help us with um, refining ourselves, but even bringing things into harmony, such as our emotion, our mental um, behaviors and patterns, right? Because I think a lot of times when we talk about these types of things, um, especially plants or saying anything medicinal, a lot of people think about uh, just healing on the physical level. So what came to mind, I like to watch a lot of time period, everything, movies, shows, all the things. And in those times, it's always shown how they use plants for mm. everything. I mean, the healers, <laughs> they were using plants to either heal physical ailments, sickness, or to poison. That was really prevalent back in those times and I often would think why did that get buried like why isn't that seem to be a more common practice nowadays but it seems like that may be coming back to the forefront but then on the other hand again to your point they can be used for so much more than just the physical healing so could you talk a little bit about how they can support us in what we may call or consider our spiritual practices and how you may even integrate that into your work. So flower essences are wonderful since they're so gentle and so subtle. You know, we're not consuming the, the phytochemicals from the plant, only its vibration. It means that they're safe to use for pretty much everyone. Um, if you have a sensitivity to like alcohol, which is often used as a preservative, you can use an alternative like apple cider vinegar or uh, vegetable glycerin when you make your own kind of personal blends or dosage bottles. So that, that means they, they really are accessible to everyone everywhere um, in a practical kind of way. And as we use them in that practical way, we start to see that we can focus on those areas of imbalance, those patterns of disharmony in our lives. So maybe that's anger, maybe that's worry, maybe that's tension, maybe that's fear, maybe that's loneliness. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And we often come to flower essences because of how we feel first and foremost. And we, we tend to focus on what the out of balance state is because the flowers are the complement to that. But this weird thing happens. It's kind of like with Reiki, you know, we, we come to Reiki because we've got that practical hands-on mm -hmm. thing. And then, you know, the complaint we came to Reiki for is better, mm -hmm. but it's not the only thing that got better. You know, mm -hmm. the big picture did too. It's the same with flower essence therapy because really it's, easier to quantify our mental affect. It's easier to, to measure the progress of this one out of balance state, but they touch us at the soul level. And we can't quantify that. We yeah. can't express that in terms of like percentage of change or um, numbers of challenges so much as just the state of the lightness of our soul. And plants are really loving beings. They are full of service. Yes, the, the baneful plants, those kind of toxic plants are adversarial in nature, but I even think that is an expression of love. You know, love should challenge us. Love should encourage us to do that introspective work. Love should hold up a mirror and say, this is broken. Um, so we can see that, that area that needs more work. Um, and that kind of loving energy they bring is going to help us grow at the big picture level stuff. And 
there's an increasing number of flower essence practitioners who are aiming more at that kind of soul level, that deep spiritual um, connection we get to plants. And that can be just as simple as, as taking them and maybe ideally holding space for that. It might be meditation, contemplation, maybe just a little bit of stillness or time in nature, but it could also mean partnering with that plant spirit, that consciousness more intentionally. And when we do that more intentional kind of work, something else begins to happen. We start to notice that it's not just um, tuning the instrument, it's meeting a spirit who can support us above and beyond what its you know resume is. I, I use this analogy with rocks a lot, but I think it translates to um, flower essences as, as well. You know, we've got that kind of prescriptive way we think about the therapeutic nature of it. Um, we we use um, you know mimulus again for these um, patterns of imbalance that include unknown fears. Um, uh, or I'm sorry for for known fears. Uh, Aspen is unknown fears, and um, you know if you can quantify it, you have a fear of going out in public. You have a fear of um, you know someone knocking on your door, whatever it's going to be. Um, you take this, and and over time that of course gets better. But as we get to know the spirit of that plant, we can call upon it even above and beyond just taking that dropper in, in, in our mouth or in our food or beverage. Um, they become these allies that we could meet in meditation, that we could meet in ritual, that we could invoke for deeper qualities. And so a big portion of the book is kind of bridging the therapeutic realm of flower essences with the more, we'll say, magical and ritualized plant lore that's out there and looking for the common thread. So, you know, something like sunflower, which is often used for, um, as a flower essence for themes of authority, maybe it's uh, resistance to, uh, unwillingness to accept your own, um, and, and promotes this kind of dynamism within us that increases confidence so we can embrace that role. Well, it's also for a long time been associated with like the sun and the solar archetype and that kind of theme of spiritual authority and, um, we could work with the essence, not just for the therapeutic side, but also whenever we need to draw in that solar influence in our lives. Maybe we want to manifest success in some area of our lives. So I have started using flower essences to supplement my other kind of magical spiritual practices. Um, so maybe that's using them in uh, conjunction with candles or um, you know, other kinds of rituals to bring in that plant spirit energy, because when we really meet them as spirits and not just a bottle full of medicine um, because they're not they're not medicine in the conventional sense there's there's no chemical compound in there that's going to interact with us it's all psycho-spiritual um, we get this really really fun kind of outlet for flower essence work so for me it started with i i was doing something with a candle for um a, a project related to some training i was taking and i didn't have an ingredient like I just didn't have this plant and um, I didn't feel like going and outsourcing it, but I had almost the same thing in flower essence form. And I thought, let's try an experiment here. Let's see if adding this to what I'm doing works, just like the material aspect of the plant, you know, a bit of bark or leaf or root or whatever it would be. And I had great, great results. So the scientist in me wanted to repeat that. So I did again and again and again. And I started to notice that other magical practitioners out there use flower essences but there wasn't really a working manual for using them in this way. Sometimes it was simply 
By the way, you can also use flower essences or um, maybe specific meditations or rituals involving a specific essence, but no big working guide to all of them. And um, I mean, certainly not all of them, but a, a, a thorough and comprehensive manual to flower essence this is from that, that magical perspective. And that's, that's where the book was born. I mean, I was shampooing my hair one day in the shower um, right at the start of the um, pandemic in 2020. And I thought, I do weird things with flower essences and I've been working with them more and more. Well, I just finished a project. I think that's my next project. So um, <laughs> the, the title came to me, like just complete download. Yeah. Um, and it stuck. I mean, just ever since that was it. And it was a breeze to write this book. It was, it was a challenge to get outside my comfort zone, but um, by, by word count alone, this is the largest book I've written. Yeah. I think it clocks in at something like over 165,000 words. Wow. And I wrote it in nine months. Wow. Just, it just happened. It flew out of me. Um, I, I wish all projects were that easy, but <laughs> yeah, it was clearly the help of my plant spirit allies. It wasn't just you know, I'm studious and I, I stuck to a schedule that was part of it, but um, it, it was really the support I got from the plants that, that helped me do that. Yeah. I mean, it's beautifully written again. I mean, it's very educational, but then you do have um, a directory of a hundred flower essences. And again, I was so excited that the ones related to me were in there, but what you just said, I mean, there's so many things that flash through my mind when you speak, Nicholas, it's <laughs> Like, I can't keep up. Um, but one of the things was, if, let's say, for example, if you um, wanted to connect with a certain flower essence for whatever, let's say it was uh, shyness, right? And you did this whole, and you do include in the book as well, how to connect with the um, different plant allies and how to even attune to different plant spirits. I mean, you provide a lot of um, guidance, even meditations in the book. But so let's say I wanted to work with a, um, a plant to help me with shyness. If I created a flower essence around it, would it be something that I could perhaps bottle, put on my altar, but then continue to connect with the essence just that's within that bottle, like for a while, to build up that relationship before actually using it? Like, do you take time to spend with the essence before actually like applying it? I guess you would say. I think it depends for me. You know, if I get a commercially made essence, um, I will probably just, you know, unscrew the bottle and, and take some as, as soon as is reasonable. Right. Um, I try to be in the right mental space so I can observe how that feels for me because it, it is so subtle. I want to make sure I'm in the right headspace. If I'm, you know, part of my, my practice out with the world is uh, showing up for others to offer flower essence consultations and support for them. So I don't want to use a plant whose spirit I don't know, whose energy I've never met just because I read its descriptive, you know, patterns of, uh, disharmony or positive outcomes in a book. I want to go deeper than that. So, um, you know, if it was something like that, I definitely kind of just dive in head first so I can observe if it's a plant spirit I know and love, um, then I will probably have a, a kind of deeper ongoing relationship with that bottle. Mm -hmm. But if it's an essence I make myself, 
they usually go through a kind of incubation phase and it, it didn't always start out as intentional. Um, so the last flower essence I made is a, a native wildflower called lizard tail. Um, they've got these kind of conical inflorescence that, that, that like bend over and dangle and kind of look like a little lizard's tail as, as it flaps in the wind. Um, and I, I made that this spring shortly after moving and it was probably, I'd say a good solid month after I made the mother tincture before I decided to make a stock bottle. And that's like the first, the, the first dilution you make. And you can take a stock bottle, um, you know, as is take it straight or, or you can refine it further into a dosage bottle, which makes it subtler, but also helps it kind of penetrate more deeply. Um, and the great thing about a dosage bottle is you can mix and match and make your own custom blend. So, um, after I made that stock bottle, I, I took some and then I, I left it on my like flower essence apothecary shelf for another couple months. It, it wasn't time yet. Um, and it just, it just had to kind of incubate there until I was ready until I needed the magic of what lizard tail was. And I started to explore because I, there, there's no handbook to what it does. It's all based on what I can observe about the plant and maybe what its spirit will tell me and what the effects are that I can observe in the field. And, and that's, that's really it. So some things it's the exact opposite. When I made my very first flower essence, which was um, a native species of blackberry, I, I dove straight in. I, I made the stock bottle. I gave it a couple of days to kind of energize. And um, then I immediately started using it. And it was exactly what I needed to get traction on other projects in my life, even though I didn't know what blackberry was for yet. So I, I think it really just kind of depends. Um, there are some practitioners and teachers and systems of flower essence therapy out there that that will work with the whole bottle so you know you get your like here's my my lizard tail bottle for example you get that and you can you can meditate with this um, you can put it on an altar uh, one of my teachers who also teaches a system called floral acupuncture um, she recommends printing out like um, the flower of life uh, pattern and then putting the bottle in the center of that and then rather than diffusing the physical drops of the essence in the room, just placing the bottle on that will, will spread its energy in the space. So I do that sometimes too. And it's a great way to get to know something in, in multiple realms. You know, it's happening at a really subtle level when it's being kind of projected in your sacred space that way. Um, whereas the kind of, you know, drops under the tongue feels a little bit more visceral, even though it's still subtle. It's not chemical in nature. It's, it's touching us quite directly and therefore we feel it more directly. It's really interesting. You've been saying observation a lot and what you just described. And that was one of the things that kind of jumped out in the book as well. It seemed like it is important to be observant in the beginning and after use. So observing before in terms of like that relationship with the plant itself and maybe even connecting to um, the spirit of the plant. So there is some deep observation awareness in what it is that you're working with, but then on the back end, observing how it works with you specifically, because like you said, it can be very subtle, but there's so much more that we can learn that way. <laughs> it reminds me of Reiki again, right? Because like you go to Reiki class and you learn the foundation and your, um, given a lot of information, but there's a lot of subtlety in the practice that won't come into your awareness 
unless you practice, right? So with taking the flower essences or using them, there's, it sounds like there's so much more we can learn if we pay attention on the other side of use. So, yeah, is yeah. that? Uh, absolutely. I mean, if you come into flower essence therapy expecting, you know, bells and whistles and fireworks and, you, you know, just instantly your life changed, that is statistically speaking, unlikely to be the outcome. Mm-hmm. It does happen. Like I've seen it. Um, there are even some sensitive people who find flower essence therapy um, not to be their jam just because they are so sensitive. They're in the extreme minority. Probably fewer than 1% of people who work with flower essences will find it too much because they're, they're so gentle. Um, but it really is about knowing yourself. You know, one of the things we get from our Reiki practice, from showing up and committing to that daily self-treatment or, or as often as we can with our regular self-treatment, regular doesn't always mean daily, um, you know, the stillness we create. Um, I, I, I love the way um, Natalie Jaspar from Dive Into Reiki says it's, it's spaciousness. Instead of, instead of thinking it as emptiness, it's creating space. And that's space to observe, space to feel space to like, just know who you are and and what brings you here for this day. And it's showing up for yourself. That is big. And with flower essence therapy, a lot of it is the same thing to be effective. We have to do self inventory. Uh, If we want to know which essence to pair with where we're at on any given day or week or year or life cycle, then we have to really ask the hard questions. It's not just I feel like taking Violet today. I mean, you can do that. You can partner with Violet just because you feel like it. But some essences, especially with the tens of thousands of options that are out there on the market today, what they do can be so similar that we have to really ask the right questions to get the nuance. Even in the batch line, you know, there are several that deal with fear. There are several that deal with loneliness. There are several that deal with um, despondency. So we have to start to do that kind of self-inventory like what what does this feeling of indecision come from is it because i can't decide given two choices or is it that i don't know where i'm going in life Mm. and therefore the little choices don't matter because they don't matter yet because i don't know what they're adding up to and and getting the difference between those two can help us figure out which essence to take So definitely internal observation is a big one. And then if we're making flower essences, if we're partnering with plant spirits um, on a more conscious level, being able to observe the plant in nature, being able to observe its life cycle and taking clues from that, letting the plant lead you in this, but you can kind of decode, you know, red flowers often deal with vitality. Blue flowers are often very mental in nature. Um, Green flowers are super grounding. Um, flowers that have three petals feel different than those that have um, five. And and being able to take those kinds of observations are great. But if we do regular self-inventory, then when we take the essence, we can also observe how that feels. We can can observe the changes in real time if we make space for them. If we go about our everyday life, I wholeheartedly believe something's going to happen. There are enough double-blind studies that show flower essences work better than placebos across the board hands down. And, um, but I also believe that if we, um, if we design the right experiments, we're going to see that coupling that with that kind of intentional and observational approach is going to give us the best outcome of all. And that's what I observe in the field. That's what I see when I work with people or with myself. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's interesting too, because when you're talking about this and even partnering with them, um, I want to ask you about the Bane and the bombs, because do you work with those in partnership as well? So would I use a, would you use a Bane to bring something up? Um, I'm not that well-versed on crystals, but it makes me think of um, a lot of people talk about obsidian in that way. Yeah. So like, would a Bane be something that I use maybe to bring something to the surface to help me become aware of? And then once that happens, though, I'm aware of it, but now what do I do with it? Right. So then what I use then a balm to maybe support me through transforming whatever that is or or do the plants tend to work independently? I think both of these are, are good perspectives. So in like traditional flower essence therapy as outlined by Dr. Edward Batch, um, the, the flower is the transformer. Whichever one we take, it, it does the job from start to finish. Now it might happen that it only covers part of what we're feeling. So we might need to blend to achieve that kind of outcome. And so the idea of making personal blends is, um, you know, uh, a, a really foundational plank in the platform of flower essence therapy. But there are some like newer approaches that use different ideas, um, mostly born out of lived experience, uh, born out of observation, we'll say, um, uh, for making those blends. And so generally speaking, like let's say um, Datura. So Datura is a member of the nightshade family. Um, there are a bunch of different species in this genus, but they have a lot of overlapping qualities. Datura is really good for, um, we'll say like fear that goes hand in hand with uncertainty. You're free falling. You're, you're, you're not sure what to make of yourself anymore because expectations are falling away and identities and attachments are falling away. Um, and we can use Datura just to get in harmony from that. But I think if we do the deeper work with that Datura spirit, not just the flower essence as a you know therapeutic tool, which is great. That that is the only level we need to work with to have an effective outcome. But if we start to partner with like that Datura spirit, Datura as a spirit is we'll say a little devilish. Um, the most common variety, uh, Datura stramonium, is sometimes known as thorn apple um, or jimson weed or devil's trumpet. And there is that that really kind of adversarial nature to it. It's, you know, very toxic, so we would not ingest it. Um, and it's got the really spiny seed pod that gives rise to that name, um, thorn apple, but also devil's trumpet, because there is some, we'll say, diabolical folklore associated with it. And that doesn't mean it's a, an evil plant or a bad plant. It just means that it, it dwells in the realm of the shadow. And for some people, entering that shadow space, like obsidian reflecting the shadow to us, can be very uncomfortable by itself. Mm -hmm. So I like to think of um, a principle that I learned in gemstone therapy of like um, nourish before release. We we should do the work to support and strengthen our whatever level we're working on before we expect it to do the hard work of purging. So it might be nice to include a, a softer, gentler plant alongside Datura. So, you know, maybe there is a balm or a tree spirit 
um, that is more anchoring, more nourishing, we'll say more warm and fuzzy uh, feeling that, that overlaps with the area you're working in. And blending the two together, I think, makes a more synergistic, a more holistic blend that can give us the ability to do the work longer. When we do that, that deeper like spirit level partnership, it is not necessarily as gentle with some plants as just treating flower essences as a therapeutic mechanism. I, I, I won't say that people never have strong experiences just from, you know, putting a few drops in their mouth, but if it's not very conscious, um, then it tends to be, you know, like all things, you know, doing Reiki while watching TV versus turning off all distractions and ritualizing that practice of Reiki. They both work. Yeah. One of them is going to take us deeper over time. Right. Um, Although we might start out with one and end up in the other. And it's kind of the same with flower essence therapy. We might start with just treating this as this mysterious little bottle full of a strange liquid that we think is going to help our life. And it does. But then we get to that place of like real deep spiritual engagement with the essences, with essences as keys to our awareness of plant spirits themselves. That can be really powerful shifts. And I've, I have taken essences that are made with things like psychoactive plants. And of course, there's no psychoactive molecules in that bottle. It's it's mostly water and, you know, probably brandy or whatever other preservative they used. But my meditations get super vivid. My dreams become lucid. Um, my, my ritual experiences feel more otherworldly. And it's n- not because Datura caused me to hallucinate. It's because the plant spirit energy with my energy open portals to new realms of consciousness. And that is not always a gentle process. So it can be useful to mix and match, but it it also kind of depends on how we're using them and what we're using them for. Gosh, hearing you describe it, it reminds me again, Reiki, because, you know, that's what's familiar to me. It makes me think of my experience with the practice of Reiki. It seems like that in of itself is a bomb, a bane and a tree. Like that practice itself brings them all in. But I could also see, and I'm very curious to play with the way that the cycles we may go through and whatever practice we have, like what comes up for us, how we work through resolving it, how we can work with these flower essences to support us through our processes of transformation. And I think that was one of the most interesting things in the book too. I mean, really considering how flower essences, it it seems like you highlight that there's really no separation between the medicinal and the magical. And I wanted to ask you a bit about that because interestingly, a lot of people still hear magic or magical and may think it's like something spooky or scary. Um, Could you talk a little bit about what that means to you, even in terms of working with flower essences, but something it's coming up to tell you this. I remember the first time I Um, so I ended up channeling, but not intentionally, but the first time it happened, I was at a meditation retreat. And so I'm sitting there just like do 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 with the other 500 people in the room. (laughs) It was at the Chopra center. It was like this big event. So I'm sitting there and we're supposed to be, you know, being silent. And I literally hear there's no such thing as magic. And I'm like looking around the room, like what? What? Cause I heard the voice clear as day. And I was like, what? But then this definition continued on saying everything is magical but what we consider magic um in a lot of ways is 
what we don't understand as the natural workings of the universe. So it's like magic in of itself is like the natural workings of the universe and everything that was, is within it. So it gave me um, a different lens. I would say that. Yeah. And so I wanted to know if you could just explain to people from this lens, how does magic come into play and what does that even mean to you? This is a great question. So I like to think of the, um, we'll say the lineage this is built upon. Flower essence therapy itself is less than a hundred years old. It's relatively modern. Um, you know, we can we can trace the the current of flower essence therapy from one individual forward. Although there were essences and essence like things that existed before him, and he certainly was inspired by the things. Doctor Edward Batch uh, is is where we get our kind of modern realm of flower essence therapy from but you know it's it's one link in a chain that takes us into the kind of like vitalist schools of um, herbalism and medicine at large which treat plants not just as sources of chemicals that affect our well-being but influence us at that vital level and you know in 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 reiki you know we think of key as like vitality it's vital force. It's not just energy that's quantifiable. It's it's a phenomenal kind of thing. Right. Um, and even that reaches further back. Um, you know, we've got uh, flower essence therapy based on uh, homeopathy and other vitalist kind of techniques, which eventually stem out of alchemy. Um, alchemy, of course, gave rise to modern chemistry and pharmacological schools of medicine and germ theory and other things. But even it is based in older and older traditions. So in the classical world, um, in, in ancient Greece, we have this wonderful word. Um, and it is the source of a word we're going to recognize when we hear it. But the word is pharmakia. Um, and, you know, our word pharmacy, pharmaceutical, pharmacist is derived from it. But pharmakia meant three different things. It meant medicine, usually derived from plant. It also meant poison usually derived from plant. And it meant the kind of person who used both at the same time and the practice that they had, which was magical. So something could be magical, medicinal, and baneful at the same time. And it was all pharmakia. And um, there is a um, similar word in in Latin, beneficia. Uh, um, and it, again, is kind of the, the, the root word of a word we know, like the word venom, um, but also the word venereal and Venus, all kind of in folk etymology, which may not necessarily be sanctioned by data, but they all seem to stem from a common root. And, you know, we have Venus as the goddess of all things beautiful and flowering. You know, when she set foot on, on land for the first time after her birth from the sea foam, it was said that flowers sprang up everywhere she walked. But then we see some of her favorite flowers are very baneful things. Um, mandrake, for example, with its um, five-petaled flowers, the shape of those five flowers looks like the, the shape of the transit, that kind of five-fold, um, almost like flower uh, pattern that um, Venus traces in the sky every several years. And because she's the source of these both baneful and balmy kinds of plants, she is the source of magic, the source of healing. So um, these definitions were not separate ideas in the ancient world. If you practiced pharmakia, you definitely practiced very literal herbal medicine, but you might also be the kind of person someone came to when they needed magical help. Uh, curse removal or uh, blessing of your livestock or protection or healing that was not just in a 
you know, phytochemical kind of sense. And so that tradition has carried carried forward. And to me, I think magic really hinges upon what you were alluding to with this idea of the kind of cosmic order of things. Um, a, a popular definition of magic, I think, um, comes from Dion Fortune and uh, like early 20th century occultist, um, famously lived in, in um, Glastonbury. She, she defined magic as um, the art of causing change to occur in conformity with the will. Hmm. So, you know, if I write an email to someone intending, you know, to book an event, I'm using my willpower. And when I book that event, there's a quantifiable change. I, you know, get to meet students and teach and maybe earn an income to actually pay my bills and stuff. I cause change to occur in conformity with my will. So we can limit magic to just looking mystical, but we can also think of any kind of change that we're, we're happening from that space of will. And it should be like capital W will, yeah. not, not just the lowercase w as, as my teacher, Christopher, who wrote the forward mentions. Um, and it's that higher self kind of will. It's the true self you know, the kind of self we touch with our Reiki practice as well. And, you know, all things become acts of magic when we do it from the perspective of getting that higher, deeper self involved, um, as long as it is intentional, although intention is not everything, it is, it is useful to know where you're steering your ship. If you're not steering, you're not in control. So we do need that intention bit, but it's also about the, the raw material we put into it. How are we raising that power, so to speak? Where's the magic coming from? Is it, in chanting? Is it in our hands-on practice and healing? Is it from partnering with uh, flower essence? Um, all of these things can be sources of that. And then of course, having the, the, the will to direct it is, is a vital piece of that. So when all of those pieces come together, we get magic. And that can be you know, casting a circle and lighting candles and invoking um, arcane spirits with unpronounceable names or it could be very quietly sitting, reverentially opening that bottle, putting a drop on your pulse point and just sitting with the energy of that essence and being open to receive its blessings. That's magic to me too. Yeah, uh, that's really beautiful. And because now that we're on the topic, it reminds me of, again, in the book, and just so people know everything you just shared, um, a lot of that is in the book, uh, especially with the root, um, words for pharmacy and venom. You speak about all of this in the book as well. But um, the the magical part of it, when you talked about dressing candles, and I thought about, you know, a lot of people now do candle work. I've even done candle work. But I wanted to ask you about this because I have Rose of Jericho too. And I'm like, well, now that's interesting. And how does this kind of <laughs> translate it? Because, you know, you set it in the water, but it, well, it looks dead until you put it in water and, you know, but there's also, of course, like intention around why you're using the Rose of Jericho and this type of thing. So I was wondering, like, by default, is that, I mean, are you kind of creating an essence because of the placing it in water? Or is that something totally different? I I have wanted to make a Rose of Jericho essence for a while you know it's not a, a flowering plant in the strictest sense of the word because it it evolved before flowers did um, but we still could make an essence just like you know pine is not a flowering plant but we make essences from it okay. um, but I think I think it's the kind of intentional bit plus the cereal dilution that matters but mm -hmm. certainly I think if you took this out and put it under um, 
full sun for some time, you'd end up with a mother essence, and then you could in turn go through that process of serial dilution. But the main thing that makes the difference between um, just putting any bit of botanical matter in water under sunlight and ending up with an essence yeah. is the involvement of that plant spirit. So it's okay. that's the ingredient that transforms something from being really, really dilute tea to being an essence is um, for me, when I go through that process, it is making the um, very clear and concise invitation to the plant spirit to co-create in that act. And that also means like I give them the option to decline. I've gone and made essences, left something out in the summer sun for hours, gotten sunburns, you know, going back and forth to and from to, to make it, to find it, and then to collect it later, um, only to have a bowl of water with some petals in it, like no, no essence involved. So um, uh, building a relationship with the plant first helps a lot. There are definitely times I've gone out into nature with the intention of cutting one particular kind of flower and then being derailed by something else and going, oh my gosh, look at this. There's so much of it in bloom. Let me, let me just see. And then it turns out, yes, that is the essence that's going to be made today. Um, and then other times, you know, I, I visit a plant for months and months and months. And every time I ask permission, I get that feeling of no. Um, so you could make a rose of Jericho essence, but get, get intentional about that and, and let it kind of lead the way. Another thing you could do, and this is something I've done with Rose of Jericho, is I will add other flower essences to the water mm. that I'm placing it in. So that way it kind of becomes a vehicle for that. So it can almost like breathe that energy, you know, drink it in through its roots and breathe that energy into the space. And um, that can be really a fun way to specialize um, the, the work you're doing with that Rose of Jer Jericho. I love that. I'm so glad I asked you. I was like, I gotta ask him about this. Um, there's a couple of other things I want to ask you too, but you just um, made me think of something. Oh my gosh, I didn't even realize we're almost to the hour. Oh no. <laughs> there's more. So is it, um, you know, like sometimes people say it can be good to eat the plants that are um, local to where you live and this type of thing because of the environment you're in. Do you feel that the same can be true for us with um, making plant or flower essences? Like, would it be maybe more potent for us or what we're doing to work with what may be naturally occurring in the environments that we live in? Not just because of the maybe ease of accessibility, but just because of the nature of the environment. Yes, a big resounding yes. Um, I've even translated this work to like the, the stones that I work with to get to know the stones of my own landscape. But this idea of like bioregionalism, of getting to know um, the active players. And I, I say it that way because then we're not just limiting ourselves to things that are alive in bioregionalism. Um, but when we look at our unique climate, our unique um, landscape and, and all the denizens, physical and non-physical alike, that's, I think, where we have a really kind of powerful alchemy. And it, it will probably turn out, if you get to know what's in bloom around you, chances are what's in bloom at some point is going to be perfectly aligned with what you need. Might not be every time, but like my very first flower essence ever was blackberry, which I mentioned earlier, and I was not going out to find it. I was actually looking for another plant. Um, and I know that this other plant has native versions in Florida, but right before I went to cut it, I got that feeling in my stomach saying, don't cut this flower. 
So I pulled up my smartphone and I'm like digging, 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 trying to find this exact species. And like, oh, well, this is an invasive one that's out competing um, the native one. Maybe, maybe that's not the energy I want to work with for my first flower essence. And I just, you know, one flower after another, all of them introduced species, none of them native. And then finally, I just happen upon this field of blackberry in full bloom. Wow. And I was amazed. Uh, by this point, I'm a little addled from the amount of sunshine I've had. And I just decide, okay, let's, let's just get close. Let's breathe into this field that is the Blackberry energy and see what it feels like. And I got this immediate, like the best way I can say it is it felt decisive. Yeah. Cut these flowers. So I did. Um, and when I, when I finally decided after taking the essence for a few days, um, when I looked up what flower essence makers say about Blackberry, one of the first things we see that it helps with is patterns of indecision. Mm -hmm. Um, having difficulty making our, our manifestations concrete. And that's exactly what I was having trouble with. I couldn't manifest a flower essence. I couldn't decide where to start. And it was that clear, clear um, message from the flower, cut this. And I did. And then everything else flowed effortlessly. So um, I, I do think there is a special medicine in our landscape. We shouldn't limit ourselves to that, especially if we're not, um, not able to go co-create with the plants around us, like you are not an ineffective flower essence therapist just because you can't do that. Like, please use whatever you need to. Mm -hmm. um, I'm all about improving accessibility in, in all ways, all levels. So if store-bought is the way to go for you, work with those. And you might take clues from the landscape. And I've done that before, you know, maybe there's not enough of a flower or it's growing too high up for me to, to actually reach. I'll, I'll go find the store-bought analog to it. Um, and that's a great way, but also making, making flower essences is wonderful for the environment compared to other kinds of herbal medicine, because, you know, in the case of something like, um, Southern Magnolia, one of my absolute favorite flowers, one of my very special tree spirit allies, one single flower was enough to make a giant bowl of mother tincture. I have like a, a liter of that. And it takes like a couple drops at a time to make a dosage bottle. And then just a couple drops of a dosage bottle to make a, I'm sorry, a, of a stock bottle. And then only a couple drops of that to make dosage bottles. I'm going to have that for generations to come. Mm -hmm. And that one flower is going to make so much magic for so many people. And since I made it in my own backyard, I, I didn't have to, you know, have the carbon footprint of it being produced in some other part of the world and shipped across the world and, you know, all these other things. So there are other benefits to getting to know the plants in your landscape too. That is so good to know. So there's two things I have to ask you one, because this is going to air on Halloween. So I have a question around that. And I have to ask you about the yew tree because I mean, I, it's been something just, I've been so curious about again, because of my initials, it's my mom's initials too. And that's a whole thing, but because this is airing on Halloween, I have to ask you, um, a lot of people around this time do have altars that they set up and, um, are very intentional about honoring their ancestors and those who have passed away. Do you have any particular flower essence that you recommend for, um, that type of ritual or altar work? Well, definitely you. So you is this very deep ancestral plant. We commonly find it in um, churchyards and cemeteries. There's some folklore that says because it was so commonly planted, it's an evergreen. So it kind of represents how our spirits are evergreen. Our bodies may wither, but a part of us is eternal and unchanging. Um, but there's some folklore since you find it in so many burial places in Western Europe. 
um, particularly in like Great Britain, um, there's this lore that the the roots of the tree will grow to every grave and therefore they're all connected. So when we connect to the tree, we connect to that ancestral energy of everyone who's buried there. And of course, you know, people who live in a small rural community, many generations of their ancestors could be buried in one spot. Um, so it's a plant that does have this deep kind of ancestral energy and wisdom to it that we could use for honoring those who've come before us. It could be our literal blood ancestors. It could be other kinds of ancestors, the people who lived on the land before us, the people who practice the traditions we practice, you know, like our Reiki lineage or our other kind of spiritual lineages. It could be the people whose work has inspired us. Um, you know, maybe there's a poet, an artist, a musician on the other side whose, whose work lives on in the work we do or in the life we live because they've inspired us just as people. That's another kind of ancestor that we might find is, is honored through something like this. Um, I also think that henbane is an, another good one. This is a, a baneful plant that belongs to the uh, nightshade family and the common variety black henbane has these kind of like veins across the surface of the, the flower petals that almost look like a, a map. Wow. All these intersecting streets or maybe intersecting canals that lead toward this dark center. It's like a dusky yellow that leads into almost black in the middle of the flower. And it's like it leads us on our soul's path back to that other other space. Maybe we'll call it the underworld. Maybe we'll call it the ancestral realm. Maybe we'll call it heaven or the afterlife. But it helps us navigate to connect to those deep soul patterns, the things that might burden us lifetime after lifetime, the, the generational kind of stuff we inherit as well. Um, so that could be a great one too. And, and of course there are others, but I, I, I'll keep it simple for us and mention those two because they're also in the book and therefore you can read more about them. Yeah. Um, but you as a wonderful ally. And the first time I worked with that flower essence was after visiting um, Chalice Well in um, Southwest uh, England in 2019. Uh -huh. I got a collection of essences they make there. And in their set of the original nine essence, yew tree is one of them. And immediately I fell in love. Wow. Just the energy of it. After, you know, touching these trees, after hugging these trees in the gardens that yeah. are centuries old, it just felt like magic. And the traditional lore of this plant is associated with things like prophecy, protection, longevity, binding, spirit communication. Um, and as a, an essence, we use it when we feel ungrounded. If we feel emotionally, we'll say brittle. Um, it teaches us to bend without breaking. It helps us unburden ourselves. We might use it to tap into the wisdom that's inherent in us instead of outsourcing that right. wisdom. So we could use it to break maybe patterns of codependency as well. It's just such a, a versatile teacher. And it's one that I come to time and time again. Wow. Maybe I'll see if when Raven goes back to Glastonbury or she can grab a bottle of it for me. I'll ask her. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. But it's so fascinating when I was reading about it in your book, because I thought of how everyone, not everyone, but like my mom, my dad, my stepdad, my brother, like I have a, a, a lot of people in my life who work in literally they work in the realm of death. Like my mom was an embalmer. Right. And, um, and then in this realm, I, someone one time was like, oh, you should work in hospice. And I was like, yeah, I don't think so. But I think about still the work that we do, how deeply transformative it is. And it is, you know, we go through these like death cycles and rebirthing and death cycles and rebirthing. But it reminded me a lot of the yew tree. And I thought like, wow, that would be an interesting energy definitely to work with. So 
as always, learned so much from you. And one of the things about the book too, I just want to tell people, don't be intimidated. Don't forget he has, <laughs> there's um, all of these different flowers that, and flower essences, a directory of 100 of them actually in the back of the book. So this could be such a guide not just to understand flower essences, but how to work with them, how to create them, how to connect with the um, spirits. I mean, you cover all of it. And so I'm thankful because I keep learning from you. I told you, I see you as one of my teachers, even though it's always through your books. I thank you so much for sharing with us today, Nicholas. It is always a pleasure to connect with you. So thank you so much for having me back. Yes, but before we go, I, I want to make sure that everyone knows too, because as I mentioned, um, our introduction to you has been through crystals and Reiki, and you still are teaching Reiki classes, and now you're traveling. So could you share where your upcoming classes are and where people can register if they want to take Reiki classes from you? Absolutely. Thank you so much for asking. So my my next round of classes will be the same week this airs in uh, Ithaca, New York, and it's going to be November 5th and 6th, uh, first degree and second degree. Um, and uh, you can find that as the link in any of my profiles on social media. Um, and I'll make sure I hand that over to you for the show notes if you like. And then I've got other great things that happen too. One of my ongoing events is I do a free online monthly Reiki share. So that way it's kind of community practice. It's interlineage. Anyone can show up with or without Reiki training, any kind or style of Reiki training. And we just hold space for the practice. There's usually kind of an informal talk about about something related to Reiki. And then I do a remote open Reiju, kind of like a, a gentle blessing, yes. uh, a booster if you're already a practitioner. And if you're not a practitioner yet, it's a taster. Uh, teaser, if you will, of what Reiki feels like. So you can feel empowered to do that and join us in that practice. So that's why it's open to everybody, even though it's remote and, and you know, kind of self-based practice. It's still um, really magical every month when I do that. And then I do online classes related to things like crystals and flower essence therapy and Reiki um, through a variety of venues. And um, I do like a monthly masterclass series or I pick a single rock or mineral and go real deep into the magic and healing that it offers. So November, we're going to talk about Flint, which is an ancestral healing stone, um, among other things. And um, I'm really excited for that because it's such a humble stone and you can find it almost anywhere, which means um, you don't always need the most expensive tools to do the healing. That's a big thing I'm working on going forward is trying to make this accessible to everyone um, in the world of crystals. And, um, you know, Flint is a really cool rock that we overlook because it's just part of the landscape, right? But um, some of the the earliest stone tools we've got are in Flint. Some of the earliest stone offerings and spiritual tools are also in Flint. And I think that tells us people regarded it as very special when they had access to other rocks, they still chose this one. So I like doing that kind of investigative work and following the thread back in time to discover the, um, the magic, the, the medicine in, in every stone. It's unbelievable to me with all that you teach and all of these events that you um, facilitate, you have time to even write these books. And so we can learn more about it. I'll make sure all the links are down in the show description, but a lot of people can find you um, on social media through the Luminous Pearl. I mean, that's an easy way to find you on Instagram and Facebook, which I'll include as well. But you also have a new book. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. I'm really excited for this one. Um, so in the past, 
I came on to talk about Crystal Basics, which is my, um, you know, kind of monum opus, as my publicist calls it, um, with a directory of 200 stones in it. But it's 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 a big boy. It's it's a large book. It's not very portable. So I came up with the idea of making a more portable companion to it with two and a half times as many crystals and new information about every crystal in it as well. So they won't be carbon copies of one another just shrunken, shrunken down. Um, and that is called the Crystal Basics Pocket Encyclopedia. And it's due in spring 2023. If anyone is going to the Tucson Gem and Mineral Showcase, you can visit my publisher in January at the Pueblo Gem and Mineral Show to get copies early. So you can get it like ahead of the curve before Amazon and anywhere else is gonna release. Um, but this is gonna be great because it's, it's gonna be pocket size, very travel friendly full color throughout, 450 crystals, index of um, like the elemental, the astrological um, correspondences, birthstones, all that great stuff, index of um, man-made and trade names and mistaken identity, uh, glossary of metaphysical terms. Like I really wanted to make this like the all-in-one little mini guide so you can take it to the crystal store or the gem and mineral show and be able to look up things as you go. You are, again, I said it at the beginning of the show, but you are so amazing. And I just, you just reminded me in the um, flower essence from the witch's garden in this book, you also include those types of correspondences like to astrology, planetary, all of the above. So you keep us busy. <laughs> <laughs> I keep myself busy too. So, um... no, but again, like really, truly you are, you have come to be one of my favorite authors and I love your work so much. So I just wanted to make sure those watching the video, you can see how gorgeous this book is flower essences from the witch's garden by Nicholas Pearson and all of the links to all of his work will be in the show description. So thank you again deep, deep bow gratitude to you. I mean, from Reiki to crystals and now flower essences, um, it's really going to help me even grow more in my own practice. So thank you for being here, Nicholas. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you, Yolanda. And I can't wait till next time. Okay. Bye everyone. Okay. Beautiful alchemist. First of all, I have to say a very special thank you to Nicholas again. I always love our conversations and I am very sincere when I say his books he's one of my favorite authors I can't think of any other books where you know literally every single page I'm like wow I want to highlight it I'm learning something he just is unbelievable with the research and the details that he provides so if you are interested the book again is called flower essences from the witch's garden by Nicholas Pearson the links to purchase are down in the show description and don't forget, he also is currently teaching Reiki classes. He has an upcoming class in Massachusetts, also one in New York. And you can check his schedule for any other dates that will be coming up. So you can find Nicholas on social media, Facebook and Instagram at The Luminous Pearl. And I will put that down in the description as well. And look out for his new pocket size crystal basics book. That sounds like it's going to be packed with information. So I hope that you learned something today that today's conversation inspired you. Don't forget to go to my website, theenergeticalchemist.com, sign up for the Reiki Rays Healing Summit. And there you will also learn from Nicholas about Reiki and shamanism. And you can also join me to learn more about Oracle or 
Even if you don't want to take the class, just get your copy of the Energetic Alchemist Oracle deck. Each deck is infused with Reiki. Once you order, I infuse it with Reiki in connection to you. And I also pull cards for you. So yes, it's just my way of saying thank you. I hope you all have a phenomenal Halloween. Be safe out there. And remember to always journey in love.